Hello, everybody. It's Fan Rollin' from Freedom Main Radio. Hope you're doing well. We are back with one of the most popular guests this show has uh, ever had, Dr. Peter Gray, who has written a book that y- – actually, just turn off your computer right now. Go to your bookstore <laughs> or turn on your iPad and get this book. It's called Free to Learn. Uh, it's just It just came out um, a month or so ago. That's right. Well, uh, and um, you have to read it. It's – you know, I've been looking at alternative ways of thinking about the world for a couple of decades, but there's stuff here. Uh, I had a full mohawk when I started, and the ideas just blew the hair right off my head. And so it is a re- it's a very radical uh, book and um, uh, radical in its accuracy, and it contains stuff that intuitively makes sense, but it's great to have the evidence for it. So uh, thanks for taking the time to chat, and um, I, you know, again, strongly urge people to get this book uh, however you can. Thank you. So let let's start with some of the um, the criticisms that you have. Um, I think uh, the last time we talked to us about the idea that school is a prison, and you, I think, openly and courageously call it a forced education, forced uh, schooling. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit uh, about that, uh, because a lot of people, I don't think, really understand the degree to which compulsion is involved in in what we do to children. Well, I mean, you know, we call it compulsory education. Um, And uh, what does compulsory education mean? It means forced education. And so not only are children required to go to school, but uh, once they are in school, their their, uh, basic human rights are pretty much taken away from them. You know, we talk in um, the United States about freedom of association, freedom to choose your own path to happiness. freedom to uh, vote on the rules that affect your behavior and and so on and so forth. None of those apply in school. Um, Rules are forced rather arbitrarily by the administration. Uh, There's no due process if somebody's accused of uh, violating rule. So uh, schools are are settings in which children are really uh, deprived of what we normally think of as human rights. We do this presumably for their own good. I mean, people, I'm not saying people do this out of ill will. People believe that this is uh, what children need, that children aren't going to grow up uh, to become responsible citizens without it. And and we've now had uh, this kind of education for at least three generations for almost all families, um, longer than that for many. So it's hard for people to imagine something different. So... You know, we um, if this were just suddenly imposed on children in this day and age, if children had been, this were just people who would be outraged. The children would be outraged. But this is something that was imposed on children quite some time ago when we didn't have notions really of freedom um, as as we do today. And, um, and it was imposed for, uh, really for a different reason from education. It was imposed for the purpose of indoctrination and obedience training. And the schools uh, were well designed for that purpose um, and still are well designed for that purpose. Although most people in education don't see that as the purpose today. Most people who, who are, you know, teachers are people of goodwill. They really see themselves as helping children develop their own um, critical thinking, their own, um, you know, their own passions and so on and so forth. But the schools that they have to work in are, uh, you know, 
diametrically opposed to the kind of um, uh, diametrically the opposite of the kind of environment that's necessary for people to really develop uh, creativity and critical thinking and and the kinds of things that we would hope that children would develop in the, in their in their education. Yeah, there's a. I was thinking of one of my favorite quotes by Nietzsche is, um, "Whatever lives long enough." Uh, sorry, when something lives long enough, its irrational origins become improbable. Uh, in other words, it's hard to understand how crazy something is if the crazy can just manage to stick around for long enough. Right. So what is it that people don't understand about the origins of our existing school system, its original intent, um, uh, not, not just the sort of the cover story that was given, but what was it all about? What, how did this change? Because it wasn't broken before. You had a literacy rate of 80 to 90 percent. The 19th century novels and, and uh, like uh, Herman Melville's The Moby Dick and Thomas Paine's books and, and uh, uh, the, the American uh, – population was incredibly literate, very well read. De Tocqueville mentioned it in his Democracy in America book. So nothing seemed to be broken. So what was trying to be done with the imposition of uh, the sort of centralized coercive school monopoly? Of schooling? Well, the, well, the initial, the first compulsive, compulsory schools were, um, were religious schools. They were Protestant schools, um, both in um, Europe, especially in Prussia and in the United States. So you know, going way back, Massachusetts has always been the leader. My home state here has always been the leader in uh, forced schooling. Going way back to, 19, to 1642, Massachusetts had uh, compulsory school laws. Nothing as big as today. I mean, I think kids had to go to school for something like uh, 14 weeks out of the year uh, from maybe the age of 8 to 14 or something like that. So nothing as much as today. But they were required to go to school um, so that they would grow up to be good uh, Protestants. They were to to um, the 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 so the primer was the little Bible of what called the little Bible of New England. It was full of uh, verses and it was full of little stories designed to induce the fear of God and the fear of authorities in general in children. Um, the method of instruction primarily was to beat kids when they um, when they disobeyed or didn't know their lessons and so on and so forth. This was all in the record. So the first schools were designed kind of, you could almost say, to beat the devil out of kids. <laughs> the belief is was that people are naturally sinful. And so you free will is part of the sinfulness of human nature. And therefore, you need to suppress the will, and you also need to teach children the, to not follow their own will, but to follow their leaders, their elders, um, and ultimately God, who was the um, king of kings in a way, even though in, in our country we had denied the idea of king, yet in, in that sense we hadn't. So obedience was the, was the main lesson, and, and a lot of indoctrination about the Bible. There was teaching reading. Because uh, the Protestants, unlike the Catholics, believed that it was very, very important for people to read the Bible and interpret it on their own. So uh, for anybody who, ha who otherwise wouldn't naturally learn to read, it was important to be sure that everybody learned to read. So that was the original purpose of, of schools. And then at some point, first in Prussia and then uh, elsewhere, including in the United States, as uh, the religious powers declined and the powers of the state increased, 
the state took over these schools, but primarily for the same function. It was to it was obedience training. It was now a different kind of indoctrination and patriotism and and so on. Particularly in Prussia, um, you know, the lessons were all about how wonderful the German language is and how marvelous the King Frederick was and how how Prussia is just surrounded by enemies and so on and so forth. And so the um, so the doctrine changed to a secular doctrine, um, and but the lesson of obedience um, continued. And nowhere along the way was there any pretense that the purpose of um, schooling was to create free thinkers or to create create creative people. Or, you know, if anything, the purpose of school was quite the opposite. There was. There was concern, I mean, in all of Europe, and particularly by the beginning of the 18th century, there was a lot of concern um, that the people were becoming too educated and too willful. They were, you know, they were reading books by Tom Paine and uh, getting rebellious. And um, so school wasn't so much about uh, teaching people to read. People could read. School was more about trying to have some control over what they read and what they thought. (laughs) Right, right. Now, the quality, um, I think, of education has declined. I mean, statistically, it has declined. I think uh, there's some test floating around, uh, the, the origins of which are somewhat doubtful, sort of an eighth or ninth grade test from 150 years ago, which is incredibly challenging when you think about it. And um, I think since the 1960s in America, when it became pretty much impossible to fire teachers, there seems to have become a rigidification in, in education. Um, I, I gave a speech at Drexel University a couple of years ago where I pointed out that you know, 150 years ago when the government took over education, you had a bunch of kids in, a, in rows with a teacher and a blackboard. And the only thing that's changed is in some schools, it's changed into a whiteboard, whereas everything else has changed. We got to the moon, you know, we got iPads and, and we can have these amazing conversations. But so much remains a static in, in the realm of, of education. Why do you think that is, if you agree with the assessment? Well, I do. I do agree that much has remained static, um, and and the changes that have occurred are in in many ways for the worse, especially in recent times. Um, but um, you know, you know, I mean, we have this model, and you know, it's a from a certain perspective, it makes sense, right? I mean, if you think we want an efficient way to educate children, we think that education is the job of teachers, the job of the school. So we think of this as a little bit like a factory. You know, it's like sending the child child along an assembly line from one grade to the next. And at each grade, there's going to be certain items of knowledge added into the child's mind. So we segregate children by age. We move them along. We have to give them tests to pass them along from one grade to the next. We divide the whole world of knowledge into specific subjects, bits of chunks to put into their brains. You know, it's a kind of an assembly line model. Once you've established that model, you know, how do you how do you change it? There's a certain basic logic to it. If you believe that it's the job of adults to educate children, the children are the passive recipients of education. That's the way you do it. It's hard to even think of another way to do it. 
So unless there was some kind of radical reconception of how, what education is, the kind of the kind that I'm proposing in my book, the kind that others have proposed too, that education is something that children do to themselves, for themselves, and that we need to provide the opportunities. We don't need to force them to do it. Unless you have that view, this is the logical way to do it. You can never do it well. You can't possibly do it well because every every bone in the child's body, every neuron in the child's brain resists it. People are naturally want to be free, and children especially do, and they naturally want to f ask their own questions and try to find answer their own questions, not answer the questions that aren't even real questions of the teachers, but are just questions of some curriculum that has nothing to do with what the child is interested in. So that's the way, that's the way schools operate. Now, schools... That being said, I would argue that schools have actually gotten much worse over the over the years. Worse because, you know, as I said, way back in the 17th, 18th century, kids didn't have to spend that much time in school. They had a lot of time out, a lot of time um, out of school to educate themselves. <laughs> and even in the 1950s, when I was a student in school, school was not nearly the big deal that it is today. And we didn't have, we had tests and they were a pain, you know, and nobody particularly liked school. But we didn't spend that much time, as much time in it today. And there wasn't that much concern about it. You know, parents weren't uh, held responsible for making sure that their kids did homework. We had hardly any homework. Um, so we were really pretty free after school. Moreover, at that time, at least in the schools I attended, and they may have been, they tended to be small schools in Minnesota and Wisconsin, so this might not have been typical everywhere, uh, but the teachers had a lot of freedom to do what they wanted, and um, the teachers, you know, at least, uh, of course, you were the victim of who your teacher might have been, but, the, but uh, I remember some very nice teachers who really understood kids and they would see that if they saw that we were restless they'd say hey let's go outside and play you know <laughs> you're tired of sitting here doing this and um, now teachers can't do that A teacher would be fired for doing that you know the teacher's job is to increase test scores the teachers don't have any freedom in the classroom any more than the kids do and they used to have some freedom and so teachers who understood kids would make the environment not as bad as it otherwise um, would be. Yeah, I might point out too, I mean, here's a contrast. We, we had school for six hours a day, pretty much as kids do today when I was in grade school. But two of those hours were recess. I mean, we had a half hour recess in the morning, a half hour recess in the afternoon, a full hour at lunch, and we could go ever, anywhere we wanted. We didn't have to stay on the, on the campus even. We'd go anywhere in town. So so four, only four hours of that six were actually in the classroom, and never were we in the classroom for more than an hour at a time. And even then, the teacher would see that if we were restless, we, she'd say, uh, you know, well, get up and play. I can see that you're restless. So teachers can't do that today. Now, now we expect kids to sit for hours and do what they're told to do. And if they can't do it, nobody kindly says, well, I see you're restless. Get up and play. They say, you know, you're, uh, aid, you better go get tested for ADHD so we can put you on drugs. Make right. sure that you can sit. It's a mental illness not to be able to sit. One of the things that um, struck me about 
what you were talking about. And you didn't mention this explicitly, but you know, I don't want to go over everything that's in the book because people should read the book. But yeah. one of the things that struck me is the degree to which it seems like our society is terrified of the free exploration and curiosity of children. It's almost like well, we have these, this structure within society, these hierarchies within society, this mm-hmm. militarism within society, this way of organizing society. And it's like the like we've got this house of cards and, and children are just going to come running in and smash it all up and, and, and throw everything <laughs> awry. Like why would we need – we control that which we fear generally, right? So it seems to me like like uh, you, you point out two, two examples with a number of um, – uh, of uh, studies that, that back it up. And the one is, of course, ancient societies where children learned uh, through playing. That playing, uh, I remember mm. when I was in theater school many years ago, uh, I had a, um, a movement teacher who said, a play like children play, seriously. And I thought, what a wonderful <laughs> phrase. That's always uh, right. stuck with me. So you pointed out in ancient societies, and you also pointed out uh, in the, um, the modern democratic schools in America and in uh, Israel and other places, where there doesn't seem to be this fear of allowing children to explore and to pursue their own knowledge on their own schedule according to their own desires. Do you think it's fair to say that we seem to be quite paranoid about the free uh, choices and explorations of children? Yeah, I, I think that is fair to say. I, um, and it's a good question why, why that's true. I think in general, we have become a people who are very, very concerned with control, controlling. We want to control the whole world. We want to control everything. Um, we can't just sit back and let things happen, you know. And this was, uh, I mean, this general view came about with the beginning of agriculture. I mean, prior to agriculture, hunter-gatherers had the view that, um, did not have the view that they controlled the world. They were simply part of the world. You adapt to the world. Um, animals are wild. Plants are wild. They didn't have domesticated animals and plants that they controlled. And children, too. Uh, are wild with, with quotation marks, Mount. And I don't mean wild in the sense that they uh, run around crazy. I mean wild in the sense that they're not controlled <laughs> by by others. They grow up with their own will. But, you know, the amazing thing is that what people want to live in society, people want to connect with other people, people it's very, very natural to. And when children really are allowed to play, they play in ways that they learn to get along with one another. They, all games have rules. And when kids are playing games together, they, they make up the rules. They figure out how to follow the rules. They have to learn to see things from others' perspectives. Play is sort of nature's way of socializing children. We've lost sight of that. Uh, we went through this long stage of history in which play was suppressed. Children became uh, laborers, um, you know, in on farms and in factories. Children worked in mines. They had to be forced to do this. Uh, play was suppressed. And so as a culture over this long period of history, we um, lost sight of the value of play and how children naturally socialize themselves. And we, and over this period where children had to more or less be beaten and forced to work in factories, um, punished um, if they didn't, um, we developed the view that, uh, well, unless you punish children, they're just never going to do what um, they ought to be doing. So, so that same view that was used to make kids work in factories and in fields was um, that same belief was transported in the, into the schools, at first with physical punishment, then with more 
gentle forms of reward and um, and punishment and shaming and competitions and and contrasts of trying to get people into competitions of who's going to be the best student who's going to get the A's and so on. We use all those techniques because we don't believe that um, that children are going to do anything um, anything productive on their own otherwise. But it's you know that view most people uh, recognize that that view is wrong when they look at very little kids because little kids are are pretty free <laughs> you know we don't make them before they ever start school they uh, are learning on their own and uh, it's amazing what they learn and it's amazing the social skills as well as the intellectual skills that they acquire by the age of four so the evidence is there in front of us but somehow we don't see it. And we've become so used to this carrot and stick idea. If you want someone to do something, put a jar of honey up where you want them to go. And if you don't want them to go somewhere, throw a scorpion down and they won't go there. And I thought one of the very fascinating parts of the book was the degree to which attempting to incentivize creativity inhibits creativity, uh, which is, again, very counterintuitive. It's almost like we want to train children like we would train lesser animals. Uh, So. Was that surprising? Did you know that before going into the research? Was that something that you found surprising in the research? And also, if you could just give a brief taste of it, just for the uh, the listeners to uh, to understand what we're what what we're talking right. about. Well, well, actually, this kind of research is is very well known in psychology. It's uh, it's just not doesn't seem to be taught in schools of education. But there's a long line of research showing that um, you know you give people tasks to do that require uh insight or require new learning or require um creativity of some sort and um you do it under one of under varying conditions and in some conditions the you know you you induce a kind of play like state this is just for fun it's not going to be evaluated in the other condition you evaluate it the way we do in school we're going to we're going to measure your performance here and compare you to the other, to others and inevitably in those experiments the um, the ones who are just doing it in the playful way learn better so the so the the giving rewards and punishments and all the monitoring and testing that goes with it um, and rewards are just as bad as punishments in this measure in this uh, on this score you know they're they're seen as uh, con- as Things that are controlling your behavior, they dominate your thinking. I'm aiming to get this reward. It interferes with your ability to think about the task you're actually doing. And it interferes with your ability to really be creative because you begin to get this fear of failure. If I don't win, if I don't do this right the way somebody else is measuring it, then then I'm not going to get this reward or there's going to be a negative judgment of me or whatever it is. So... So these these kind these results these these are really well known in um, in psychology. It's just that somehow people generally don't put that together with what we're doing in school. We're just providing the conditions in school, which are precisely the conditions that are known by research psychologists to be the conditions that inhibit learning and creativity, um, insightful thinking, and so on. So. Um, so I, that was no surprise to me at all, and and it and it would and it is certainly no surprise to any other research psychologist who is interested in uh, cognitive development or cognitive processes. These are well-known phenomena. 
Yeah, and it, it is really tragic. If you, if you give someone a prize for achieving something, then the goal becomes not the satisfaction of achievement, but the acquisition of the prize. And then the whatever momentum right. they have stops when they, you know, you don't keep running after the finish line. So you get to the. So I, I thought that was a really interesting. And of course, I'm thinking about this as a parent as well. As a, my daughter is a four, and uh, making sure that I try and stay away from the the carrot and the stick, which is sort of what I was raised with, and understanding the degree to which that's going right. to inhibit her just uh, curiosity. Now, another thing that I thought was was fascinating was the age mixing uh, is really uh, really interesting. Um, and now, uh, and I think as you point out, age mixing, which is you know like you have five year olds playing with ten year olds in between, and you know some people on right. the outliers and so on. The age mixing. It never occurs in school, of course, maybe a little bit in the playground, but of course, everybody's locked in, you know, in that 12-month window right. uh, in their classrooms. And I hadn't really thought, I mean, I can, I sort of understood, um, oh, age mixing, okay, so the kids are going to learn from the older kids, the younger kids learn from that's good stuff, right? But I didn't think about, and I think you elucidated it beautifully, the degree to which older kids benefit from mentoring younger children, the leadership skills they develop and all that kind of stuff. What if you could touch on some of the benefits of age mixing uh, and and um, how tragic it is that it's missing from our classrooms? Yeah, yeah. I mean, age segregation is is really in in the long history, biological history of human beings, age, age uh, mixing is the norm. Age segregation would never have occurred before schools were developed and we started. I mean, even the early schools tended to be one-room schools with kids of various ages in it, at least in, in rural communities, that was true. But um, but during all of history, when the whole biological self-educative instincts evolved, children would have been playing with kids of all ages. And um, that was that's certainly true for hunter-gatherers. There, the, first of all, the bands are relatively small, so even if they wanted to segregate by age, there wouldn't have been enough kids to play with. So they're playing with kids across. You know, the, a typical play group might include kids from age, you know, four on through twelve, or age eight on through seventeen. You know, big big age spans. And similarly, at the school where, uh, the, you know, the radically alternative school, Sudbury Valley School, where I've done much of my research, um, there are kids from age 4 to 18, and they're not segregated by age. They intermingle, and they're attracted to one another. Little kids like the bigger kids. The bigger kids like the littler kids. So there's a lot of interaction among them. And what you see in this setting is that, uh, you know, it's fairly easy to think what the little kids are learning. You know, clearly they're being surrounded by people who are speaking a bigger vocabulary. They're learning new words from them. They're seeing little kids who can't read or seeing somewhat older kids who are reading and talking about books. And then, oh, they want to do that. They want to talk, read books too. They want to join that magic club of people who can read. They see kids climbing trees and they're motivated then to climb trees. So the modeling that occurs and then when they're they're actually playing together, older kids and bigger kids, the older kids are sort of boosting the younger kids along, allowing them to do things that they otherwise couldn't do. So, you know, sometimes it's a literal boost, helping them up in the tree and standing underneath to catch them if they were to fall. And sometimes it's a metaphoric boost as uh, if, you know, they're providing, you know, let's say you're playing a card game, which, you know, the typical eight-year-old can't really play cards very well with other eight-year-olds because they lose track of what they're doing and they 
may uh, don't fully understand the rules often, but an eight-year-old playing with a 12-year-old, playing with a bunch of 12-year-olds, the 12-year-olds remind them, you know, hey, pay attention to the cards. Don't show your hand, idiot, you know? <laughs> and and so they're constantly, um, they're constantly boosting their intellects in this sense. I mean, this is, you know, they're, 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 they're scaffolding their intelligence. I mean, intelligence is the ability to pay attention to things, to remember things. And the older kids are simply reminding the younger kids to do that in these games. And so, so the, so there's an enormous amount of advantage to the younger kids. Now what's the advantage to the older kids? First of all, the older kids are getting a sense of their own maturity. I mean, even a seven-year-old is mature compared to a four-year-old, and the seven-year-old feels mature, feels, hey, I'm responsible, I'm capable of helping somebody. That's an extraordinarily powerful and important feeling for a person of any age, is to feel, I can help somebody else. You know, and to grow up feeling that you can help somebody, what could be a more important thing to develop than the ability to help other people? And teenagers like to play with little kids. They, you know, they they roughhouse, the boys tend to roughhouse with them. Girls sometimes do too. They read to them. You, you'll often find in this school that I look at, there'll be teenagers doing teenage things, but they'll have little kids sitting on their laps. Well, they do it. And the little kids are just so delighted to be there and part of it in the middle of all of this. And I think that the older kids are kind of learning how to be parents. You know, I mean, I think this is completely natural. In the course of evolution, it was pretty important that we had some experience with kids before we had our own kids. <laughs> and um, and in an age-mixed environment, kids are getting that experience. They're learning what younger kids are like. They're learning how to help them. They're learning it to be nurtured. The other thing that I think, um, there's actually a, a lot of evidence that I, some of which I summarize in the book from a variety of sources that the presence of little kids brings out the nurturing instincts in older kids and then that nurturing instinct even generalizes to their interactions with one another among the older kids. And I think that's why anthropologists, that's part of the reason, not the whole reason, but part of the reason why anthropologists report that they never see bullying in hunter-gatherer bands and why um, we don't see it at the Sudbury School. Um, if it occurs, it's in a very incipient incipient fashion and is quickly stopped by uh, by other kids so if somebody begins to bully somebody else some older kid will step in and stop it but i think that in general the presence you know the presence of little kids tends to make us all kinder even to each other than if there weren't little kids around hmm yeah, and I, I was from when I was a, a teenager. I worked in a daycare for a couple of years. Uh, it was an after-school program, and the kids were five to eleven, and there mm -hmm. was a lot of mixing. And you could really see. I mean, why, why play with a doll when you can play with a five-year-old? You know, for some of the right, older girls. Exactly. <laughs> and it was really interesting the degree to which um, uh, they they had to negotiate with each other to make sure the games were fun for everyone. And, and you brought that up in the book. And I just wanted to run a little wee thesis by you, just get your thoughts about it. You know, one, I, I don't know where you stand in terms of economics. I'm a big fan of, you know, as much free market as you can possibly stomach, you know. And, and <laughs> what seems to be happening in the West is, you know, more centralized command and control. And the people seem to grow up without much of an understanding of the value of voluntary interactions, win-win negotiations, which the market is supposed to, in its ideal form, uh, represent. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting was when you talked about how a bunch of kids get together with no adults around. 
Well, they have to figure out what to do. They have to negotiate. They have to, you know, if they, right. if they all choose an activity, they have to make sure that everyone enjoys it, especially if it's an activity like a, a baseball or soccer or whatever, where if some kids leave, you can't play. So um, I really thought that kind of nego- negotiation uh, and win-win was really interesting. It kind of mirrors what happens a lot of times in the free market, whereas as you pointed out in the book, now what happens a lot is, you know, the parents drive the children to an organized activity with another parent or a coach in charge who tells them where to play and who's going to play and how long they're going to play for. And they don't negotiate. uh, Because to me, the point, like when I was a kid and my brother was older, so we hung around a pretty wide age range of kids. So, you know, some were better, some were worse. Mm -hmm. We all had to negotiate. We all had to find a way to make everyone happy. And we'd actually sometimes spend more time negotiating than we would playing. And really the point of the playing was to learn how to negotiate win-win for as wide a circle as possible. It just strikes me that as things become more sort of centralized command and control economically, I don't know what causes another, but it seems to mirror itself in the way that we sort of centralize command and control childhood these days. Yeah, I mean, exactly right. I mean, what... You know, the essence of play is that it's a free choice and, um, and you're always free to quit. If, you can't, if you're not free to quit, it's not play. And so if you and I are playing a game and we're really playing, we're both free to quit. There's no pressure on us saying, you know, except our, you know, I may try to say, oh, please play, you know, but even that's negotiation. But you are always free to quit. And so if I begin to bully you in some way or if I want to just have it my way and not uh, take into account what you want to do, uh, you're going to quit and you're going to just leave me alone. And if I behave that way to enough people, I'm going to be just left alone. Well, I've got this enormous drive as a human being to um, play with other people, to associate with other people. I This is... This is um, a terrible punishment if you if people just leave me. So, but it's a completely natural one. It's a completely natural one. It's a, you know, and so I have to learn to take other people's views into account. I have to learn to see things from other people's point of view and not think that I'm just it's just oh, the whole world circles around me. And the children are constantly practicing that in play. That is one of the major lessons of um, social play. And I'm sure that in the course of evolution, one of the reasons this strong drive to play socially came about in the human being is because that's how human beings learn to cooperate, learn to negotiate, learn to get along in groups, in cooperative sharing groups with other people. There's, you couldn't design a better system for learning it, and um, you know, lo and behold, Mother Nature has designed that for us through the through the evolution natural selection process well we totally circumvent that when we put adults in charge and and uh, have adults telling the rules and solving the problems and telling everybody how to play you know the uh, uh, the adult led little league game is uh, maybe a good way to learn baseball how to throw a curveball or how to slide into second base but you know, baseball is uh, far less important for most of us to learn than how to get along with other people, how to solve our own problems, how to negotiate differences, how to make sides even, how to decide what's fair and not fair. 
And kids, when they're playing on their own, are constantly involved in this. And you're right. They may be spending more time negotiating and more time talking about the rules and arguing it out than they are actually spending playing the game. But which is more important, play, you know, learning to play the game or learning learning to play the game with in big letters meaning the social game how to how to get how to how to get what you want while also allowing other people to get what they want that's the big skill that everybody has to learn in order to play with other kids and what more important skill can there be for us adults in in all through life you know this is what it's about we can't we can't we're not individuals who live all by ourselves we always depend upon cooperation with other people and the most successful people are the people who know that and understand how to cooperate successful in all terms in terms uh, of being able to find ways to support themselves but also in the sense of having happy marriages, having happy friendships, having basically a happy life. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I would argue that almost all the relationships that matter the most to us are voluntary. I mean, I mean, if my wife couldn't leave me, it wouldn't be much of a marriage. If I couldn't leave my job, I, it wouldn't be much of a job. And so learning how to find win-win in voluntary in situations is something that we, we, we have this um, – you know, like this is consequentialism style of parenting, which I've been exposed to recently, which is that, you know, if your kid just grabs a toy from another kid, all the parents in the world come raining down and, oh, no, don't do that. You got to learn to share, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And there's an interesting argument which says, well, let them experience the consequences of grabbing other kids' toys, which is that the other kids don't want to play with them very much. And that's, mm -hmm. the, the, there's a consequentialism which is much more important than uh, intervening in the natural consequences of, say, selfish or antisocial behavior, uh, assuming it's not obviously violent. But the idea that children are going to make mistakes uh, has become progressively less tolerable for us. And I don't know what that is. I, I think it has something to do with the fact that Parental time seems to be stretched very thin these days. You know, I mean, lots of two-parent families or single moms and so on. And when, when I was a kid, um, you know, go, go play. <laughs> Get out of the house. I have right. things to do. Whereas now, uh, parents don't have nearly as much time with their children. So I think they want to kind of hold them a lot closer and not sort of push them out to, to go and explore the world on their own. Right. You know, you made a, a, a good point a moment ago, and I want to go back to it about um, – in a marriage, if you bully your wife, she'll leave you. It wasn't all that long ago that she couldn't leave you, you know, that she either because divorces weren't permitted or because there were no independent ways for women to make a living. And so people were more or less locked in marriages, and there was enormous amount of spouse abuse. Terrible. It was only when divorces became possible and when people could leave a marriage that marriage became a happy state of affairs <laughs> for most people because uh, – Just um, to sort of back you up there, I mean I, I read a statistic recently that uh, women's suicide rate went down enormously. Uh, women's marriage, women's depression went down after no-fault yeah. divorce came in. Uh, depression went down, suicidality yeah. went down, other mental health yeah. problems went down because you have the choice and the choice so is the everything in life. The freedom to leave the relationship is critical to making that relationship work. <laughs> And here we put children in school where they're not free to leave it. They're forced to be with this other group of kids. And they're, if they're bullied, they can't leave. And that's when kids commit suicide. That's also sometimes when kids just, you know, flip out and um, 
and commit mass murder. I mean, these this is an abnormal condition where where there is not the freedom to leave, and when there's not the freedom to leave, bullying becomes possible. It's really the freedom to leave that prevents bullying. And um, we can make all the rules and laws we want against bullying in the schools, but until kids are really free to leave it, <laughs> you're, you're not going to stop bullying. And this this is one of the great tragedies, I think, of, of – I mean I hate to say the world, but I think it is fairly worldwide, which is the idea that we we cannot view children as – moral agents deserving of at least as much protection uh, as adults. You know, if, if we try to run uh, adults' choices the way that we run children's choices, we would understand that it's totalitarian in its essence. Uh, it's yes. fundamentally fascistic in its essence. But the idea that there's just been this weird thing where we believe that reforming a non-voluntary institution will make it have the characteristics of voluntarism, which is sort of like going back to the Middle Ages and saying, okay, well, we're not going to get rid of serfdom. We're going to pass a whole bunch of laws that say the lords should be nice to their serfs. Or, right. you know, we're not, we're not going to get rid of communism. We're going to pass a whole bunch of laws that say we should like, we'd like communism to be politically peaceful and economically productive. Like, you, there's no substitute for voluntarism in our relationships. There's no, no, no source, no magic, no law, no right. God. Nothing can make what voluntarism brings to a relationship and yet with children it's as incomprehensible for us to allow them to choose their own destinies as it is incomprehensible for us to deny that to adults and I just started for the rant but that's just something I think that in the general extension of voluntarism to marriage to slavery to to hopefully militarism, to to yeah. maybe things like taxation, the extension of voluntarism, yeah. we're not done yet. We've got a whole class of people, the most important class of people, that we've got to start even having the conversation about. Yeah. You know, a lot of people will say, well, you know, going to school is just like an adult going to work. You know, there are things you have to do that um, you might not want to do. And it's good training for work to go to school. But what people don't realize is that we can always leave our jobs, you know, we can, you know, it's, you can't by law make a person work in any place. We, we, we've, we've done away with slavery. It's no longer permissible in this country. It's at least it's not legal. And so people are free to leave their job. And so if a person's free to leave their job, their employer then has to, uh, take some account of their welfare and what their wishes are, because if not, they'll leave. <laughs> so the, uh, and we don't, we don't uh, give the same opportunity to kids. So no, and the, it, but what this school is does, it's a basic human characteristic that if you, if somebody is not free to leave a relationship with somebody else, then bullying becomes not only possible, but likely. Um, and there's an enormous amount of bullying in schools, not just of kids by, uh, towards other kids, but of adults towards kids, too. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think to be fair with the original Prussian intent of the school system, uh, the school does prepare you for really crappy jobs. You know, I mean, because like they wanted them uh -huh. to become soldiers and factory workers two possibly, at least at that time of the 18th century, the worst jobs you could conceivably imagine. So a school in just sort of training you to be passive and training you to space out and training you to just obey orders, it does make you a good soldier or a factory drone, which is kind of what was important for the militaristic Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's a good point. I mean, the primary curriculum of school even today is 
timeliness. You have to you have to show up on time. You have to move when the bell tells you to move, <laughs> and only then. You have to uh, do what you're told to do in the way you're told to do it. And if you do all those things, you're likely to be passed along and do okay. If you are have a rebellious spirit and you don't show up in time or you don't move when the bell tells you to move or if, you, God forbid, you do the assignment in a wholly different way and the teacher doesn't understand it, um, you know, then you have failed. So you're, you're right. I mean, a lot of, a lot of the curriculum of school is following the clock, following rules, so the rules that you have no voice in making. I mean, it's one thing to follow rules that you have a voice in making. It's another thing to blindly follow rules just because you're told to do it, even if it doesn't make any sense and you had nothing, no voice in making it. So I think that is a lot of the curriculum, and that's the way a lot of the jobs were. You just had to blindly do this. You couldn't question um, the authority and so on. But those jobs, thank God, goodness, are pretty much going extinct now we've got machines who can do all that and we don't need to reward them or punish them to do it they just do it you know so we need human beings for more creative things now and our um, schools are uh, not well designed for producing that right now maybe we can end up and i mean literally i could talk all night but um uh, uh, the way forward i mean my goodness th this seems to be the biggest revolution that human beings have ever faced which is the the extension of full humanity to to children the recognition mm. uh, really that children uh, we generally believe tragically that children uh, are lesser beings that deserve lesser protection which is why in the united mm -hmm. states it's still permissible to hit children why in canada it's still permissible to hit children uh, which uh, has been denied to all adults for for many years mm -hmm. um the, the way forward is the extension of full humanity uh, to children um, as we have to minorities, as we have to women and so on. It just seems really a staggeringly difficult thing for people to do emotionally because it involves your own childhood history and your own childhood trauma and things you probably don't want to go back and remember and deal with. But also um, there is, you know, at a very sort of nuts and bolts pragmatic level, an entire colossal industry and an entire colossal economy and an entire colossal political structure that kind of is dependent on all of this stuff. I mean, if you even think mm. about giving school vouchers to parents, I mean, public sector unions go insane because uh, mm. if, if you give choice to children, will they choose the existing system? Of course not. Otherwise, we would have given that choice to children because it would make no difference. So mm. when you think of the resistance uh, going forward, how do you see this beginning to change? Yeah, I don't see it uh, changing from within the school system. I, I do see it changing by virtue of more and more people leaving the school system. Now, one thing I have to give credit for in, in, here in the United States is at least in most states, it's possible to leave the school system. You can leave it for homeschooling, unschooling. You can leave it for Sudbury schools, the kind that I've observed, which really are places where children are free and direct their own learning or in this age-mixed environment. These things are all legal in this country, at least in most states. It's not entirely legal in every state. And, um, and more and more people are doing it. And I think that I, the way I see the change occurring is as there are more people who leave it, at some point everybody will know somebody who grew up without schooling as we know it, 
and they will see, hey, that person's okay. <laughs> you know, they don't even have to see that that person is um, happier or more productive or you know more creative and so on than other people. All they have to do is see that that person is okay. And if they can see that it, you can grow up okay without going through school and having a happy childhood in the process, um, why wouldn't you choose that for your kids? But you've got to be convinced that it's possible. Most parents believe, and they're constantly hearing the rhetoric. They hear it from, they hear it from the leaders of both major parties in the United States. You know, they hear it from everybody. They hear it from, uh, you know, and school does a very good job of indoctrinating people in the belief that you need school. So they're constantly being indoctrinated with this. But as soon as they begin to hear the arguments on the other side and actually listen to them, and even more than that, when they begin to see people who educated themselves outside of the school system and who are doing okay, then they're going to say, why should I make my child who's clearly suffering in school, why should I force my child through that? I think that one thing we can see that, you know, the history of humanity since, um, you know, over the, over the past uh, X number of, of centuries has been generally one of progress towards more freedom. I mean, we went through a terrible stage of history where most people were slaves or servants of one sort or another, not free, and these feudalisms, you know, systems of slavery, we began to develop democracies. We gradually applied the idea of freedom to not just in the America, not just to white landowning men, but then uh, all white men, and then we began to include black men, and then we finally decided women are human too. You know, the the progress has been towards towards more and more freedom. And once people are free, they don't want to go back. And so I think that I think that it's inevitable. It's, I can't predict how long it'll take. But I think that it's inevitable that we're going to um, recognize that children, too, need freedom to make their own choices, especially about education. That's what they're designed to do. They come into the world burning to uh, learn about the world, understand it, and they, they have their own ways to do it. And we deliberately deprive them of the opportunity to do it in our schools because we want to control what they learn rather than let them learn on their own way. But I think that when we see that it works, when we see that we have, if anything, an even more productive economy and that people are happier when this results, I think it'll happen. I have a lot of faith in, in human beings. Um, I, I also have seen enormous social changes just in the course of my life. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that homosexuality was either a sin or a disease, depending on whether you were looking at it from the religious or the secular point of view. And now, you know, everybody under 30 and most of us over 30 have uh, come to accept uh, homosexuality as a normal variation. It's perfectly compatible with uh, a, a good life, uh, with mental health and uh, being a productive citizen. And how did that come about? It, it didn't come about really from theorizing. It really came about when some brave homosexuals came out, proudly announced that they were gay or lesbian, took all the abuse it took for doing that, and then 
lo and behold, everybody discovered that they've got some uncle or cousin or brother or child who's or a friend down the street or there's a movie star or a great athlete, homosexual. Well, how can you after that condemn it? And I think that there's going to be something similar happening as we see more and more people who are brave enough to educate their children outside of the system. And in this case, when people see that, hey, you can grow up this way and be perfectly normal, then there's going to be a lot of people opting for that route. Um, in this sense, it's different from the, you know, the homosexuality analogy doesn't apply here. People aren't going to change their sexuality because they see it's okay, but people are going to change their way of schooling because they see it's okay, because it's also a much more pleasant and normal, natural way for everybody to do it. Well, yeah, and I, I agree with you, but I think there's, there's a difference that we can maybe just spend a minute or two exploring. So, I mean, the blacks were free, freed by the whites, and the whites had not been slaves when they freed the blacks. The women were freed by the men. The men had not been women, we can assume, and, and so on, right? right? So, and and most, most of the people who are tolerant of homosexuality uh, were not themselves gay uh, beforehand mm-hmm. and so on, right? Whereas we all were children. Uh, and I think right. that's, you know, for me, just... When I was reading the book, there's time that I'm actually in tears in this book, um, hearing the description of the schooling that, that the kids had available to them in the Sudbury Valley School and even in some right. of the Democratic, though not quite as – and the reason – I mean I went to boarding school in England when I was six where you got caned mm. for doing bad things and you had to line up in oh, rows. Funny. It was very, particularly Dickensian. Now, I mean I've gone through years of therapy. I've really tried to work on all that kind of stuff. But looking it, – it's very painful to – to free the chains of people where you were in that situation, if that makes sense, because mm. you really have to deal with your own pain and you have to recognize how much opportunity and possibility was denied to you by mm. granting it to others. And I think that's a big difference from all of the prior revolutions uh, of or extensions of humanity in the past, and that it went to a group that was kind of, you know, what the postmodernists call the other. You know, it was somebody who was different. You could grant them freedom, and it was a freedom that you had not generally had denied to you in the past. But mm-hmm. I think that's one of the challenges, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, I think that does make sense. And, and we also kind of think of it, you know, a child is not a different category of human being lifelong. A child is a stage uh, that all human beings go through, as you've just pointed out. And so, you know, we have kind of this view that children are Children, when they're young, are are not ready for freedom, and so they have to be directed and controlled, and um, then at some point they become ready for freedom. That's a little bit different than believing that blacks or women are never ready for freedom. So there is that there is that difference, and it does it does make the make it a little bit harder to think about it. But you know what I like to suggest, and talking about your own childhood, I, I like to think. One of the things that I find that helps people think about this is think back when you were, I don't know, eight years old and try to remember what you were thinking about. What was the level? And I bet you will recognize that you were thinking about pretty sophisticated ideas. You had a pretty good understanding of the world around you. You were not all that different at eight years old in your ability to make reasonable judgments, your ability to philosophize about things than you are today. You know, we have, you know, Piaget developed all these stages of reasoning. They've been pretty much, you know, research, one thing I kind of point out in the book, I don't go into detail about it. I actually do in my textbook. Um, 
the researchers have pretty much shown that's simply not true. We don't go through these stages of cognitive development. We pretty much are all concrete operational thinkers from from the age of four on through uh, through adulthood, um, thinking the same terms. We do learn more. We acquire more knowledge and hopefully more wisdom as we go along. But we're not fundamentally different in our in our ability to understand things and reason about things when we're kids and to make reasonable choices. But if you deprive kids of the opportunity to make choices, then they may act irrational on those rare occasions when they're allowed to make choices. And of course they're going to make mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. That's how we learn, you know. So you see a kid who's free, who makes a mistake, does something dumb, and you say, oh, see, you know, you, you let him free and he make, does something dumb. So I guess we've got to control his life. But that's part of the learning process. And we all, you know, we never... I'm. I do at least one dumb thing every day, too. But <laughs> that doesn't lead people to think, oh, they have to take control of my life. <laughs> right, right. That's a, that's an excellent point, an excellent point. Yeah. Well, um, I am going to put a link to um, to the book um, uh, in the low bar of the video, another podcast. And, you know, as always, I, I, I want to tell you I, I hugely appreciate, I mean, the work that you're doing. The writing style is really wonderful. Uh, this is something that, you know, I mean, I'm a big fan of fiction and, and poetry and so on. And, and But prose uh, is a real challenge. Nonfiction prose is a real challenge. I struggle with it. And I think that it's an elegant pen that went across your page. And I really appreciate the, the way in which you communicate these ideas. I can sense the enthusiasm behind what it is that you're trying to communicate. I think it's an incredibly essential thing uh, to communicate. So I really wanted to appreciate that and, and, and hope that I can drive some sales your way. Because if we can convince uh, parents that there are options... You know, you know, I don't think of jumping to the moon because I don't think it's an option. If somebody told me I could, I'd be there in a jiffy, right? So I hope that we're giving a choice uh, where choice before did not exist because there's been such an absolutism around the way we've thought of education for so long. And, you know, the last time we thought creatively about education, we couldn't even leave the ground in an airplane. So <laughs> I hope that, uh, <laughs> uh, that this uh, drives some books. Thank you so much for your work. It's always a pleasure, and I hope we get to chat again sometime. Well, thank you very much. I, I really do appreciate it um, a great deal. And, and um, I'm really hoping that, you know, my fondest hope is that the, the book plays some small role in, in what I see as the inevitable revolution in education. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Peter Gray. Um, we'll talk again. Thank you so much. Thank you.